Welcome to another episode of the Artesian Impact Investing Series. This is Christine Chang, Director of Operations. I'm joined by John McCartney, co-founder and Artesian's head of North America, and Kurt Tan, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager for North American Credit. Today, I'll be hosting the discussion about recent market events and the upcoming disclosure regulations affecting the strategic liability of carbon for corporates. Let's kick off with by asking how you describe current market conditions for fixed income and specifically for green bonds. Thanks, Christine. For bond investors, we've had a very tumultuous 2022. We've moved from a market environment of COVID-19, where we saw interest rates globally move down to zero by most monetary authorities to help uh, the economy survive through the shutdown. And what we've seen coming out the other side is obviously inflationary pressures that that has caused. And so for underlying interest rate markets or the risk-free rate of return, each government market globally has seen some extreme moves up and down and the volatility that we haven't seen since the 1980s. Specifically, it's ended up inverting the bond curve. So what we're seeing is that the two-year part of the curve is trading at a higher yield than the 30-year part of the curve as the market perceives the inflation problem as being very much front-end. Similarly, in the credit markets, The underlying volatility has created the credit fan, if you like, to expand. So the difference in spread between a AAA security and a BBB security has expanded as the risk-free rate of return has increased. So for fixed income investors, what we're seeing now is the most uh, attractive part of the yield curve is the very short part of the the short run, because that's where you're getting the highest yields. So zero to five-year part of the, the fixed income curve is offering very compelling risk return profiles in terms of corporates, because not only are the credit spreads wide, but also because of the low interest rate environment that we've seen during COVID, it's allowed a lot of the investment grade corporates to term out their debt, which means they have very little risk in the very short term. So in terms of risk return, the most attractive place to be investing at the moment is in that short end of the curve and in corporate bonds. And we also think that investing in green bonds in the short end of the curve is also a very interesting uh, thing for investors to be doing, given that we've seen in US dollars specifically, the green premium or the greenium disappear as interest rates have sold off and we've seen this higher volatility in the, in the credit markets. Also, in your view, what's the impact of the exodus from Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank and First Republic on the credit and venture markets? Yeah, the banking crisis that, we, that we've seen here in the United States in March and also over in Europe with Credit Suisse, of course, has obviously created more volatility in both fixed income and credit markets. Specifically, SVB also has impacts on what's been happening in venture capital because of the way that they'd set their balance sheet up with a large amount of deposits that were coming in from venture capital companies that had done well on raising money during those low interest rate environments for investors looking for returns. That cash pile was being matched with long-dated government securities. And what we've seen in the case of SVB was that they had an asset and liability mismatch in that all of their assets were short-term deposits and the liabilities were short-term deposits and their longer-term assets they used to match that were were 30-year government securities. And as interest rates sold off, those government securities were worth less. So that meant that it created a run on the bank. So yeah, SVB had problems there. We saw with Signature Bank, they were overexposed to crypto And then obviously in Europe, it was Credit Suisse, but that had more to do with a series of mismanagement over over many years that led to a liquidity crisis for Credit Suisse. 
And also the speed of deposit flight this time around is truly impressive. Unlike when IndyMac failed, you saw a lot of photos of people lining up to withdraw their money. Here, with the improvements in digital banking and the reach of social media, you could move money around fast and you could hear news spread fast. So truly, it's a different scale this time around. And for us at Artesian, it was obviously concerning because SVB plays such a solid role in the, in the venture capital markets. And them disappearing was of, whilst we don't have a lot of exposure at Artesian, given the fact that we're more Asia-Pacific focused, but we do have some startups that are in, in the United States and they had very small exposures to SVB. But it's more the indirect worry that we have with SVB and the, the importance that people look at them in terms of the ecosystem of venture capital and the services that they were providing. And can you explain why Credit Suisse equity holders were actually prioritized over their debt holders and if this affects the green bond markets? Yeah, it was actually in the, the structuring of the documents. I mean, it's, it, we've never seen a situation whereby debt holders receiving less in terms of recovery than, than equity holders, but it was specifically in those Credit Suisse AT1 bonds that Finmar, which is the Swiss regulator, was allowed to call for a bail-in. And for to get the deal done with UBS, it appears that the regulator required the ability to, to reduce the amount of liabilities that UBS was taking on. And one of the ways or one of the tools they had to do that was by writing these AT1s down to zero. And maybe a little bit of history lesson here, these AT1s or additional tier one securities, they're a type of bail-in bonds designed in the post-GFC world by regulators to allow banks to absorb capital loss without these financial institutions having to issue a lot of equity to meet you know, increased capital requirement ratios post-GFC. So they rank above equity and below subordinated debt. But these instruments, these AT1s, can either be converted to equity in, in a certain trigger or in Credit Suisse's issue, they had the ability to be permanently written down. Now, these securities offer higher yields than vanilla unsecured bonds, and that's why people bought them in a zero rate environment, they got a little bit of extra yield. Yes, but in terms of uh, the green bond markets, there's not many uh, green bonds that have been issued in these deeply subordinated structures. Uh, I mean, there has been two, BBVA has done one, a Dutch bank has done one, the Volkers Bank. But a lot of investors, including us, don't like buying these securities because the risk return impact payoff isn't reflected in the leverage that these securities provide in the capital structure. So you're not getting the, the leverage that the, the issuer is getting from those securities is not being reflected in the impact that those securities are making. Yeah, that's a great point. I think it's actually a great segue into what the current state of ESG regulation is. Where is it now? Where do you think it's headed? Well, in, in Europe, obviously, it's, it's quite advanced, especially in the, in the regulatory area where they have you know designed quite a big stick to make corporates move towards disclosing the carbon intensity of their businesses, along with, you know, really erecting the majority of the infrastructure required for, you know, green bonds to be distributed and issued by issuers. So, and the ECB has also put in lines to make sure that, or the tilt, if you like, to the ECB's balance sheet has been pushed towards green and sustainable securities, showing how integrated it is in their capital market system. And that's also why we see a green premium or the greenium been quite pronounced in Europe. It's anywhere between five and 20 basis points, which is something that we're not seeing in the United States. I think I mentioned earlier, you know, during the rate sell-off of the last couple of months, we've seen the green premium move 
from maybe five to 10 basis points in, in US dollars to flat to positive. So with the regulations that we're seeing in Europe, it's creating this persistent greenium because, especially in times like volatility, where you need these government institutions to be able to provide liquidity and backstop a liquidity into markets, the green and sustainable securities are outperforming because the ECB is taking them into their window. And that's probably why we are seeing in the US market fewer green issuance for a variety of reasons. Corporate treasurers are in cost control mode. So the cost to issue green bonds is maybe unpalatable at the current moment. We also are seeing, as John mentioned, the, the SEC climate disclosure to come out. Corporates are a little bit hesitant because of the uncertainty. So they'd like to see the clarity of what requirements they will be burdened with if they issue these green securities. Yeah, I think that's a, a process of, s- of slowing them down in that the uncertainty with regards to the SEC disclosures. We've definitely heard syndicate deaths here in the United States talk about that as a reason. But I think you're correct. Is I think that the market volatility and the ability to see a funding window emerge means that it's much easier and faster to issue regular securities than it is to issue green. And I think that um, that will change over time. As the regulations come out, I think that green premium will start to move back into the markets. So I've heard Artesian talk a lot about a carrot and stick mentality with respect to managing their carbon risks. What does that mean? Well, the stick is really the regulatory environment, uh, you know, and the, and the Europeans are, are leading there, showing the world how to get corporates to, you know, estimate their their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, and to therefore allow investors to work out the carbon intensity of, you know, their production process. And they've in- introduced a cap and trade program using carbon credits as a way for uh, the markets to try and stabilize emissions going forward and they're going to reduce those those carbon credits over time to bring them down to net zero and so they've been very much leading the uh, markets in the way that regulatory and legislative bodies can use the stick to uh, sort of push markets towards equilibrium in a net zero environment conversely in the united states they're being far more innovative around the carrot and there we have the Biden administration through the IRA Act introducing a series of tax incentives that can be compounded or stacked on top of one another to make investing in clean technologies very, very attractive from 2025 out. Because what they're trying to do is, you know, get the donkey or the economy to move by placing a carrot in front of the donkey while the Europeans are using the stick to hit, hit the donkey from behind. And I think that what we're going to see over time is different economies adopting both. They're going to have a carrot and a stick program to try and get capital markets to move in the direction that they need them to. And I love that analogy. Speaking of the stick, the ISSB, uh, you mentioned there's no currently no um, accounting framework for ESG. What, what's your opinion of when the ISSB is going to come into effect? Well, they've, they've stated they want to bring it in the first quarter of 2024. They're releasing uh, a discussion paper in the third quarter of this year. Uh, so we're expecting that around September. But I think that a lot in terms of accounting, the carbon accounting associated with scope one and scope two emissions are fairly well defined now. Most corporates have got their heads around in the last five years about what the direct emissions are from their scope one emissions. So that means that their the emissions that are coming directly from their production process. I think their scope two emissions they've got a good idea about, which is the indirect exposures they've got. So that's up and down their uh, supply chain, so upstream and downstream. 
The real issue around the accounting is around scope three, which is once they've sold their product, how are their consumers using that product? And that's what the ISSB is trying to bring out to the market so everyone has a standardised view about the way to treat scope three emissions. And I think with the SEC, what we're going to see at the end of April is they're going to give us an idea about scope one and scope two, but they'll kick the can down the road in terms of scope three. So it'll be a phasing process with scope one and scope two in the next 12 to 18 months, and they'll have another 12 to 18 months to introduce scope three. So what's the answer for these corporate treasurers to optimize their returns? You, We've talked in the past about investing uh, in strategic assets to match these strategic liabilities. What exactly does that mean and what can corporate treasurers do? Yeah, so I, I think the main point that uh, corporates need to understand is that as the SEC releases these climate disclosures, it's going to allow investors and consumers to work out what the carbon intensity of the products they are selling. So that's going to create, we see it creating three emerging risks on the horizon. The first one is obviously process risk, so how much carbon is coming out of your actual uh, production process. The second one is obviously regulatory risk. So as we've all mentioned, is that governments have created what they believe to be a net zero target for the globe because we've got a closed-end system. And those liabilities have been broken up amongst governments. And now governments are trying to use regulation and legislation to pass that down to economic agents. So in terms of corporates, what they really need to do is they need to get an idea of what that risk means in terms of what the regulators are going to do to their process, because they do have the ability to, you know, tax and other things to change the efficiency of their underlying assets. And then finally, there's market risk. So that we've got a physical production process risk, we've got regulatory risk, and then there's market risk because the, your price of your debt and equity are they going to be de- going to be determined about how management handles those first two risks. So. We see that as being a very big issue for all management teams, but specifically for the corporate treasurer because he now has green finance tools that he can use to try and reduce these strategic liabilities that are being created by the regulators and legislators. And we're still fairly early in this process. I mean, we're seeing expanded use of proceeds uh, of eligible projects. A lot of companies are typically investing in renewable efficiencies, lighting, so on and so forth. But some of the more innovative companies are using those proceeds for M&A transactions or internal R&D to build products or extend the functionality of their products that support increased sustainability features for their end clients. So in, in some cases, they're actually making a direct impact to scope three. Yeah, I think that's a good point in that green bonds offer uh, corporate treasurers a, a direct line of sight to be able to deal with these strategic liabilities. They can take the use of proceeds from the green bonds and in, invest that in renewable power. And as Kurt mentioned, you know, uh, green buildings and electrifying their distribution fleet and other things. And they use 80 or 90% of the proceeds to do that. And that reduces their production process risk now, which therefore alleviates both their regulatory and and market risk associated with carbon liabilities. But most of the corporates that that we see issuing green bonds understand that they do have a residual stub. There is 10 or 20% of their carbon emissions that they need to invest in new technologies. And for corporate treasurers, they've got ability under the eligible projects in in these green bonds to apply that green capex to innovation. So they can, as Kurt mentioned, they could do it on their own balance sheet or they can put into venture capital funds focusing on clean tech. Especially for the hard-to-abate sectors who really need significant help, significant investment, and frankly, significant partnership for those who aren't able to do it in-house. 
Thank you, John and Kurt. Let me summarize our discussion today on current ESG market conditions and how to maximize impact by matching strategic assets and liabilities with three key takeaways. Number one, we are bullish on investing in ESG through credit. Now is a good time to invest in green bonds given long carry, wide credit spreads, low volatility, and high sharp ratio in comparison to other asset classes, especially in the U.S., where the greenium hasn't been priced in. Number two, governments are managing climate change with positive and negative incentives. Using the carrot and stick analogy, clean tech tax incentives to encourage investing in renewables are the carrot, and ESG regulation is the stick. The U.S. government is using carrots such as Biden's Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which includes home energy credits and clean vehicle credits. European governments, in comparison, are using the stick, such as the International Sustainability Standard Boards, to develop a comprehensive global baseline of sustainability disclosures focused on the needs of our investors and the financial markets. And this brings us to our third and final point. The best way for corporate treasurers to maximize their financial and ESG returns is to match their strategic assets with their liabilities. Focus on building a green portfolio while reducing your carbon footprint. By investing in green bonds, corporates can build strategic assets now. But by also investing in clean technology through venture, corporates can also simultaneously build their strategic assets for the future. John and Kurt, can you also please offer your final thoughts? Yeah, so you're right, Christine. I think that the, the Europeans have been great innovators in, in uh, defining the stick to try and move economies towards net zero. And the Americans have obviously done, uh, the Biden administration specifically has done a great job for the clean tech markets by providing these tax incentives, which I will say the Europeans are now adopting something similar. So they're setting up their solution to the IRA Act as well, as we're watching the Americans take what the Europeans have been doing with the stick and, and adopting it within their regulatory and legislative frameworks. And we're seeing that globally, especially in APAC, Singapore, Australia, Japan, are all following the, the similar playbooks to try and uh, get their economies to move in a similar direction. And I think for, for us at Artesian, we have a very interesting insight in the, looking at the investment topography out in time in that we do have very good view on what is happening in green capex from the green and sustainable bond market. So it gives us very good insights on where capital is pouring in from a very uh, high level you know, the, the green and sustainable bond markets will hit three trillion outstanding this year and it's continuing to grow. But, you know, as we've mentioned, we think that the interesting part of, of watching the, the startups is, or, you know, the early stage venture capital, which is another large part of what we're doing, is that these green shoots associated with these new investments that are coming along, they're not only being helped by the governments and the carrots, but there's also the strategic liabilities are driving corporates to looking to investments in uh, clean tech. And, for us as you know, venture investors, that we, we see the valley of death for venture capital as being paved with capital from both governments and uh, corporates to try and, especially for startups that have very high impact, they're the ones that, that, that will survive. And, and that's why we believe that impact is a real driver of enterprise value going forward. That's terrific, John. Kirk? The message I have here is for corporates to invest and, or continue to invest in your green bond program. You know, I, the way I think about it, it, it's like a muscle. The more you do it, the better you'll get. So your experience cost curve gets better. And given the, the volatility right now, imagine if you could come to market rather quickly because you have a mature green bond program, your investors know you very well, know that your reporting is good and the impact that you're making is good. I think you'll be rewarded for it over the long term. 
Great. Well, thank you to both for sharing your thoughts on how to match ESG strategic assets and liabilities. Uh, I've certainly learned a lot today and thanks the audience for joining us as well. 